This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? 9.37am. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mukhtar with Wong Xiaoning and Philip C. This is WTF, or What's the Focus? Our weekly roundup show of the top stories that have dominated headlines this week, as well as other news tidbits that you may have missed. Now, the biggest headline that you can't have missed, because this is in all the major news outlets coming in just over an hour ago, and that's regarding FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. He has been convicted of over of seven charges of fraud and money laundering by a New York jury. This is the uh, highest profile crypto-related trial that has been held uh, and the decision is pretty monumental. The jury only took four hours to decide actually and Bankman-Fried has been accused of swindling FTX customers of some $10 billion. Now, prosecutors said that this fraud extended from 2019 to November 2022. So this might cause him to spend as many as tw- as as many as twenty years in jail. Although I think it's it's I, yeah, it, it, he is going for an appeal. So he let's is be going clear. for an appeal. I I've, I've seen a figure that if he gets the maximum penalty for all seven charges, he could be in there for a hundred years. This man <laughs> is thirty one years old. That's a long time uh, to think of facing in prison. Okay, so let's let's kind of do a little bit of a a, a, a look back at his career, right? Because what FTX. career, actually? Well, FTX. Let's talk about FTX. At <laughs> one point, guys, it was valued as thirty-two billion US dollars and had celebrities that included Tom Brady, Larry David, and Steve Curry. I don't know who these three are. I know Tom Brady is a footballer. The rest of the two, Steve Curry is a basketball, basketball player. player. Okay, and Larry David is a comic actor. Oh, sorry. See, I'm like so out of it. But they were celebrities that actually endorsed. FTX, okay? And at one point, didn't they advertise heavily in like Super football yeah. games and all that? They and had a was, stadium named after them. Yeah, so this guy was really, really, really riding high. But the point about FTX was that at the end of the day, what caused the collapse of it was just the fact that there were just no rules at all. There was no corporate governance and there was no risk management in place. And Sam Bankman fried really just, I think, you know, it was a case of uh, he didn't know what he was doing and he just allowed all sorts of transactions to happen from one entity to another entity. I mean, you can draw parallels to what we also saw in WeWork, right? Because they also planned to file for bankruptcy over massive debt piling losses. That also was led by its founder, Adam Newman, who I think you can find quite a lot of similarities between both, right? Both very young CEOs, perhaps a bit wet behind the ears. And I think all these mishaps have resulted in uh, both companies imploding. But I wouldn't say it's exactly the same because WeWork, the founder, Adam Newman, isn't facing any charges. Sure, Okay, different. And I think Adam Newman's case when it came to WeWork was the inherent corporate structure of a of we look at we work okay so what it does is that it takes extremely long leases for as long as 10 15 years but then it rents out their offices in a very short term manner so there is a mismatch between WeWork's liabilities versus their assets, right? Mm. And this was not helped by COVID-19 because everybody just went back home to work rather than took short lets at their 
at their premises. But I do think the commonality is the way they approached risk. I think they took too much risk in this whole process. And the governance surrounding how you take this risk was lacking in both sides, right? And I, I feel that's a function of the leadership being perhaps too young, too naive in making all these miscalculated steps going forward. Interesting that you mentioned that. Just to note that WeWork hasn't filed for bankruptcy yet, but they are considering it. And I think uh, that's something, it would be a, a real fall from grace for this company that was valued at 47 billion US dollars in 2019. Uh, it marks a stunning reversal of fortunes. And while we're on the topic of perhaps uh, these wonderkind business people, entrepreneurs, it reminds me also of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes yeah. and the fact that she was also convicted uh, inter. For fraud as well, uh, for mm. the uh, medi- healthcare medical company that she ran. I wonder what is the environment that they are in, right? So this, uh, during that era, it was an era of extremely cheap money. Yep. And there were a lot of investors, right, giving you, throwing cash at you. And you had a lot of cash to burn. And there wasn't any consequence to it. Nobody said, oh, let's make a profit. Let's have a look at uh, your operations in detail. Everybody thought, oh, you know, this is the next golden unicorn, you know, and it's like sure win, sure win. So it's it's the era of cheap money that drives un- t- unnecessary risk-taking, if you ask me. Mm. So now in this new era where interest rates are at 5.25% mm. in the US, here 3%, that's the overnight policy rate, whether there's a little bit more caution and investors are looking, hey, really, what are you doing? You know, Are you going to make money? Are you going to break even? Rather than, hey, don't worry about it. Let's just focus on growing market share, which was clearly the kind of mindset a few years ago. I think so. I think this is a very good point, right? Where cheap money has really created so many options to how you deploy capital. So you really don't you know, think through the different options properly. And, you know, these three CEOs that we talked about, Young in Nature, haven't had enough experience, probably didn't get the right advices in place to help them nurture and develop it over across. I know many young CEOs, actually, who actually made sure they appointed experienced hires to guide them uh, as they navigate through these really interesting times, right, even though access to capital was available. I don't think they ever had a recession, felt a recession, Mm. never experienced a downturn, right? These kids didn't work during the 2008 great financial crisis clearly probably weren't even born before the Asian mm-hmm. financial crisis. So it's going to be very challenging unless you felt it to be to have that sense of... In order to manage con- the crisis. Yes. So it's a real, um, how to say, it's a real push for intergenerational um, cooperation in a business. Because if you look at FTX and Sam Backman-Fried, it's right, all his lieutenants were friends of his, friends of... His uh, girlfriend. You know, his, pretty much friends of mm-hmm. his brother. On off. It was just um, very much kept at that one one generation um, and as you said, may not have uh, the full picture in terms of what could happen. Uh, but yes, we'll be following that story because as you mentioned, Shaoning Sam Bankman-Fried is going to appeal. Uh, perhaps we haven't seen the end of this quite yet. Uh, but let's turn our attention to, uh, I guess, uh, earlier in the week when um, we had a bit of a Halloween frenzy. You may have seen our social media where we uh, had colleagues dressing up. Um, no candy was handed out uh, at our Halloween event, but of course, Halloween and candy, uh, you can't separate them. The two the two are intertwined. Yeah, it's very interesting, right? Because actually many people say after Christmas, Halloween is the second biggest festival for people to shop. And you can see that, right? Prices for candy and gum actually jumped 7.5% in September compared to the same month. Now, people have been navigating higher prices on many goods as the Fed struggles to tame inflation. And Americans expect to spend a record $12.12 billion this Halloween on candy, costumes and other expenses. I think for them, it's a really big event, right? They take 
take trick-or-treating to a whole new level. And I don't know, I mean, I don't live in the US, but I've seen some pictures of people's homes when they decorate it. It's like really over yeah. the top. Okay, well, so I, I was in London. I saw that happening, right? Uh, many houses adorned with cobwebs. Even laptops were adorned with uh, cobwebs as you tried to register yourself as a guest. So clearly, <laughs> Halloween's kind of influence is spreading globally like you know it's, it's, it's become commercial f- it's so super commercial like Valentine's Day um, yeah and like many other events mm. that uh, have this global appeal so it's a huge money making business 3.6 billion US dollars is going to be spent on candy alone not talking costumes not co- talking decorations that's a 16% increase from last year but what are the reasons for this it's not just that people want to hand out more candy it's actually cocoa prices have gone up incredibly so it's hit a multi-decade high rising 61% this year and what's the cause of that I think is the debate right is it the function of supply because we've seen persistent rain delaying cocoa harvesting in some of these top producing countries like Ghana and Cameroon hurting supplies there so I again this is the impact of what we're seeing in terms of climate change in terms of uh, whether we have the agricultural output that can feed the kind of produce that we that we consume right mm-hmm. um, so all these factors coming into play uh, affecting our cost of living and prices I also did see this year on TikTok and Instagram what people were giving out besides candy Oh really like it what It was potatoes Potatoes <laughs> Yes so I think it's true. If you want to give out something, uh, why not sell it next time? Maybe think of fruit. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, candy all the time. I mean, if you come to my place, you could get chilies. Sure, we'll include chilies <laughs> with our candy giving. I have been given uh, Brazilian spinach by you once upon a time. I'll be happy to take that too. <laughs> but you know, it's a trend. Chocolate chili is pretty tasty. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you should try it. All right. Okay, well, thank you, Philip We'll put C. that on the list. Yes. 9.46 a.m. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll come back with more top stories from the week. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. 9.48 a.m. You are listening to The Morning Run with Shazana Shouning and Phil. This is WTF or What's the Focus? Our weekly recap show of the top stories that have dominated headlines over the past uh, few days as well as any other news tidbits that you may have missed. Uh, we are turning our attention to some of the local headlines that have really caught attention and I think uh, the Ministry of Health, uh, our, pand- our pandemic um, allocations, what we did, that really came into the spotlight Uh, after the uh, Public Accounts Committee issued their report this week. Okay, so a bit of a recap here, right? Um, The PAC found that there were ventilator losses, okay? Uh, We ordered 136, of which I think more than 100 weren't working, so there were question marks about... How were these ventilators ordered? Because apparently it was ordered by Pharmaniaga Logistics and the orders were done via WhatsApp. (laughs) I'm not joking. You're looking at me because I know you're away. You think I'm joking. I'm not, Philip. They, they ordered it via WhatsApp. To be fair, I'm not surprised. And, and we also had vaccine losses of 505 million ringgit because they were expired. But that one we can kind of understand. Well, let's just unpack both, right? I mean, the WhatsApp sounds ridiculous. But I mean, it comes back to the point, if, if you recall, we were in that situation where it was very urgent so people wanted to expedite things mm. very fast and I'm sure the suppliers were saying look this country was going to you know take this and take that so you better quickly make a decision very fast right but it doesn't stop you from having proper governance and just to make sure everything was done properly so I think the the WhatsApp sounds 
utterly ridiculous, honestly. But the excess vaccine, I can kind of get it, right? Because people didn't know how serious the situation was then. I think what was particularly egregious for the ventilator situation is that because supposedly there was no proper contract between the two parties of MOH and also Farmanyaga Logistics, then the conclusion was that, oh, nobody can be held accountable, which is which sounds preposterous to me. Um, so yeah. that's what uh, think, I think they're trying to clarify that or figure out what to do mm. with that because fact of the matter is we're still short of a hundred over ventilators uh, that you know that we can't use. Yeah, and the point is the MOH has basically been given two months to come back with uh, an explanation as to really truly what has happened. Because you're right, money has been lost. There has been mismanagement of uh, well, there's been clear, I'm sure, disregard of guidelines when it comes to procurement. There has to be an accountability trail. There needs to be forensic accounting also yep. done to see who decided on this, whether the reasons for that decision are justified, because it could have been. And during that process, was there proper paperwork still done in the first yeah, place? Yeah, I think so too. I agree with you. I mean, for me, look, if you maybe you make these mistakes, right? Mm. But you've had two years now, right? What have we done so far to actually right the wrong? I mean, you say they're malfunctioning. Have we actually got re- re- working yes, ventilators now, right? That's the question. Yeah. So you may have made mistakes then. Okay, or not to the mistake, but yeah. take the corrective action because two years in, right, since this procurement took place. Yeah, so our Prime Minister actually, when wrapping up uh, the budget debate, has basically said that he's not going to take the issue of corruption and governance lightly because it, yes, obviously has caused losses to public funds. My point is, okay, we know that. Is anybody mm. going to be taken to task for this? Every year we look at the Auditor General report and then we, our eyes just open wide looking at the sums of money lost. But I don't recall anybody actually being charged with anything. Mm, interesting. Maybe I'm wrong and I hope I'm wrong. But what's the new era of this Madani government going to be like? Mm. Is it going to be one that focuses on accountability? And what's very interesting is that uh, former health minister Kari Jamaluddin has said he takes full responsibility for the excess vaccines, but not for the ventilator procurement scandal. That one, I think, uh, Dr. Adam Baba, it was done during Dr. Adam Baba's time. So I'm going to be very curious to see how all these discussions um, could impact the government procurement bill that's supposed to be uh, tabled uh, in the future, uh, hopefully very soon. Um, Hopefully they'll take all these concerns uh, into that legislation as we decide what the best uh, guidelines and Senate procedures are for government procurement. Uh, let's turn our attention to another story that's popped up this week as a result of the sinking ringgit. I think the ringgit hit what the was it the ringgit or the yen? I'm so confused because the they're both four point eight. They're I mean, both yeah. competing to reach like the the lows, right? Uh, but they're at very low levels of they're yeah they're weak. Okay, the so the ringgit hit a twenty four <laughs> year low. Okay, it's dropped at the at the worst point in time. It was actually down nine percent. Uh, it's recovered somewhat. I think this morning is about seven point eight percent. So with that, there's been noise as to how we can actually get the ringgit back up. And everybody just you know who's old enough, I look at the two of y'all. Yeah. And I see. No, I remember it. Well, do you remember it? I do remember okay. it. Okay, capital it, controls mm. actually happened 25 years ago. It did. Mm. So the question is, do, do we want it to come back? Because the person who initiated it has suggested <laughs> that we should. So I guess the question in my mind is, is the context very different then versus now? I remember last time when Dr. Tun M, I think you, you're alluding to him, 
you know, instituted capital controls then, that was on some logic that there were speculators, the equivalent mm. of George Soros, George Soros at the barbarians at the gate trying to seize and I think kind of manipulate the currency. You don't see that situation happening now, right? So the context is very different, isn't it? It was also, okay, a very different time because let's face it, at that time, Economies in Asia were really, you know, hitting a brick wall. It was desperate times. Indonesia, yeah. you saw like, I think shortly after that, there was a collapse of the government. There was riots on the street. Malaysia, we didn't get there, but unemployment rates skyrocketed. Mortgage rates were like 11, 12%. People were really struggling and really worrying, worried. So in a way, capital controls achieved one thing, which was to buy time to reorganize our own domestic financial system on our own terms. Because the World Bank and the IMF, their prescription in terms of getting us out of recession was something that our then Prime Minister thought would be too painful for us. Yeah. So he did something very radical. Overnight, he pegged it to 3 ringgit and 85 cents, said that we're actually even lower than it now. But that's what he did. And he basically controlled the inflow and outflow of all domestic currency. And I can tell you, markets were super shocked. Nobody had done that ever. Yeah. Now, when we look back in it, it did achieve the time. It did achieve something. It did buy us the time to get our house in order. But I don't think we ever truly recovered from that because the perception of Malaysia is always, do you, is there going to be overnight policy changes that's going to spook markets? So I think this is such a interesting state of affairs because as you said, right, the ringgit is the second worst performing currency. And this lingering thought about policy uncertainty mm. is I think it's what dogging this persistent weakness, right? Yeah, and by the way, it was packed at 3.8, not 3.85. Mm. I do apologize. Mm. So uh, it's so, it, again, what's fascinating to me about this is how decisions of the past, whether they can be transposed in the current way, it's not that easy. Yeah, we, we want to learn from historical context, but that doesn't mean historical solutions are always going to be the best way forward, depending on how circumstances are. Uh, so again, no, the policymakers haven't said that they're considering this, but it was raised by uh, Tun M himself in interviews recently, So, which is why we're talking about it. Uh, again, um, the issue of our ringgit, it's nothing that's going to be resolved overnight, really. It has to probably take some hard work and painful decisions in order to get our house in order uh, for that ringgit to go up. But we can hope. We can always stay hopeful and we'll keep you posted on the movements of the ringgit as always. It is 9.56 in the morning. Uh, we That's all the time we have for WTF this Friday. We're heading into the 10 a.m. news bulletin. We're, uh, we'll pass over to Enterprise after that. Happy weekend, everyone. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.